Okay, so we UK uh, has had a few days of trading on its new post-Brexit carbon market. Prices are already up on uh, the EU system. Harry, tell us why you think that's happened and what's going to happen going forwards. So yeah, the UK carbon market launched on Wednesday and essentially as a replacement to the European emission trading scheme, which it's left now post-Brexit. Essentially, what it's trying to do is put a price on carbon per tonne emitted by country. So it, it's operating the same way as the EUTS. So it's cap and trade, cap of allowances based on the uh, UK's emission targets, so that hopefully that will reduce in line with the 78% reduction by 2035. Operators can buy these allowances and they sort of cash them in at the end of the year based on how much they've emitted. And there's a certain amount of trading that goes on within that. What we've seen right from the off is that prices are high. They're higher than they were expected to be and they are higher than within the EU itself. I mean, that's partly because the UK has actually reduced its cap basically compared to what it would otherwise be allowed through the EU ETS. So actually it's covering roughly at the moment around uh, 155 million tonnes of CO2, which is about a third of the UK's total emissions. It's sadly at the moment only covering a few things. It's, it's mainly the power sector, heavy industry and aviation. So that is it's significant, but at the moment we're not seeing it shifted onto things like passenger vehicles, for instance. Right, but it but, is covering aviation and, and does the EU one cover aviation? Partially. I mean, to the same extent that the UK one does, yes. So it's, it sounds like it's just a copy and they just wanted it because they're separate. And so we better have a separate one. They picked an amount of uh, cap and trade and it's it's going to trade up because there's less uh, allowances to buy. Yeah, so I think one of the really interesting things that we'll see with it is the and one of the key differences, I suppose, between the UK, UK and the EU one is how it's keeping its market uh, stable, theoretically. So the UK set this sort of baseline limit of I think it was £44.74 uh, per tonne of carbon, um, which essentially it didn't want to go above. because That's based on a two year rolling average of the EU ETS, basically so that suddenly there's not this massive jump in carbon price. Uh, we're obviously already above that. And if it stays this high, for the next three months, which it almost definitely will, there should be some sort of intervention schemes that sort of start to pull it back down. But to be honest, I think the fact that it already seems like an outdated mechanism, I mean, there's no way that we can really start pulling the UK price for carbon much further down than the EU price for carbon. So that will be, it'll be interesting to see how they respond to that and whether or not there's any backlash from industry uh, within that itself. I think one of the other things that people were quite concerned about was that there's not really a link to the EU carbon uh, market as such. Um, so you can't sort of trade UK um, allowances with EU allowances. Um, that sounds like a good thing, though, because I mean, it, it sounds like people just buy the cheapest allowances and move them around. It does. Yeah, absolutely. But I think one of the I mean, the biggest problem is the, for the UK is the risk of carbon leakage, which means that big companies with large emissions who suddenly think, oh, it's too expensive to operate in the UK, will suddenly move abroad. Um, and that's obviously the UK's reason for wanting to keep its prices fairly similar to the EU. Um, it will be obviously really interesting to see how that is then... Uh, Coming back to my favourite question of border taxes. Yeah, exactly. You know, if, if you want to then trade with the UK and we have a border tax, you haven't gained anything if you move abroad. Yes, exactly. I think that's that's something that has to happen. Um, I, th I know the EU are very, very seriously considering it. Um, and I think once the EU does, the UK has sort of no option really but to, to fall in line with that. The, um, the big news of the week was um, the report the IEA wrote. It really has received nothing within a few, with a few exceptions, but plaudit. And it's not deserved. This is the first time it's actually put out a forecast based on 
reaching zero emissions. It hasn't said, oh, we think this is what's going to happen. It has said, we advise governments, and if the governments ask our advice, we can tell them what to do. But it hasn't said, this is a forecast. We believe this will happen. It's now gone from, we hate solar, we think it's it's dying out, to solar's going to be the biggest power base uh, across the whole power sector. To, at the expense, it seems, of wind, you know, with about half the money going into wind that goes into solar. So the, it's skewed in solar's favour, where, where in the past they've been skewed against solar. There are other things wrong with it. But the one thing that isn't wrong with it is is they were a last bastion of non-believer and they've, and they've just suddenly become a believer. They've got religion and they believe that we can do it. It was net zero by 2050 and they've got a lot of publicity for it. And yet it was exactly the same message that we put out in our report, Look Back in Anger, precisely the same message. Interestingly, not the same numbers because they they seem to have double covered all the uh, uh, power sector energy um, and they didn't go into any detail about how they covered the steel and cement industries. So they said they did, but they didn't say, oh, it's because we're going to produce hydrogen using renewable energy. So some areas were very detailed, but it certainly got the most coverage. I basically gave them uh, not an A+, uh, not even an A minus, but a B minus, and, th- and welcome finally to the right class. You can't you can't criticise them for finally getting it not quite right, but in the right direction. So you've got to you've got to applaud them for. I mean, well, where have they been all this time? You know, Twenty years of thinking oil's just going to stay, and then their forecast for electric vehicles, apart from our own, which as far as I can see is just right. There is the highest forecast for electric vehicles by almost double anybody any other forecasting agency except for us. So yeah, they've, they've, they've understood it. I mean, that's because they're based in France and their analysts are based in Europe and they've looked at what's going on in Europe and they've understood it. So it's, it's still a victory uh, for common sense, even if um, they're getting uh, some of the praise we would have liked to have had. <laughs> I think it's overkill. I think it's just unlikely that we can scale to that, the industry can scale to that, or that every investor would get their money back if they were installing at quite that speed. It's feasible that that we could get to those type of numbers by 2030 with a very high investment. The thing is, I don't think they've imagined what happens to a developer when they says, Actually, the world is now quite well served with renewables and they're not closing down the fossil fuel farms at a sufficient rate for me to make profit on another deal, yet another large deal. And so I think, you know, the it's a great idea for electricity grids if you have double double coverage of renewables, you know, if you can do everything in wind and everything in solar. But some of those then must become unprofitable installations. And that will act as a lag on investment as soon as that begins to happen. And that will begin to happen in a scenario where we're installing at that rate. Do you you think they're overcompensating based on the stuff they've done in the past? I mean, it's always, I suppose you're, the sun's always bound to be quite bright if you've been looking down an oil well for 20 years. Yeah, I think there is that. The other thing is that they had a, a peer review. You know, they say it's peer reviewed. What they they mean is that 
all their members, uh, not just the member cu- countries, you know, remember, they are an OECD organisation. But, yeah, I mean, it's credible if you ask NREL or, or um, IRENA or NL for, you know, look at our work, what, do you agree? Uh, it's not quite so credible if you ask Shell, BP and the Japanese Minister of Trade and, and Industry. Because they're, they they've always had a long term view, or the LPG Association. You know, if you have too many fathers of a report, you you end up with a paternity suit. The, the um, they they've effectively said these have been peer reviewed by all these organisations, and I only mentioned some of them. And, but I don't believe they can have been. I mean, GWEC, for instance, you know, their numbers don't agree with these numbers that the uh, Wind Energy Council, GWEC's installation numbers um, don't show. Uh, peaks where where this one shows peaks or, or expenditure quite so high so quickly so they they didn't it's not been peer reviewed exactly they've asked other people's opinions are we on the right track and and they've grudgingly said at last you're doing something good you know go out there and, and giving them their blessing and that is quite an odd thing I mean I, I think you can't be a forecaster and then turn it into a committee. You have to you have to kind of say, no, that's what I really believe in this. This is why. But, I mean, rather than being critical of the organisation, on the first time it does something good, we should support it. Because they've been giving other governments the wrong idea for a long time. On that subject of governments having the wrong idea, we move on to your piece, Andres, on India. On India, um, yes. An anti-dumping so- probe against Chinese uh, silent. It's not that much news that India is trying to create its own solar industry behind tariffs. The news this week has been that they are launching an anti-dumping investigation into solar cell imports uh, from China, Thailand and Vietnam. So that's almost all of the current. And, uh, I mean, you know, it's 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 part of the that contradictory thing that the protectionist societies do. Um, you can't operate here unless you're in a company 51% owned by Indian people. You can't operate here uh, without us taxing the life out of you. We, you can't come into our organisation. But we want but we want to accelerate our development. And it's, 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 it seems to be you can have one, one or the other, but you can't have both. And it just consistently, um, <clears throat> I mean, it, do the Indian Solar Manufacturers Association really believe that they are going to be funded to be competitive with um, Chinese manufacturers? At present, the, the Chinese cell imports are, uh, prior to the current price rises, which may have changed things, These uh, like a year ago, the Chinese cell imports were 30% more cost effective, uh, just on price. I think it's not that different technologically compared to the Indian ones. And I think a few years before that, they had a 10% advantage. And 30% is massive. And that is going to be more or less overthrown by these basic customs duties which is 25% for cells, 40% for modules. So that means you're basically going to make the um, the module component cost of uh, of any solar development uh, is going to be a third higher. And India will bring in some stuff like viability gap funding, but I don't think they. It's not the wealthiest government in the world, so I do think it will be quite painful. And the the this new basic customs duty comes in in uh, April 22. And I wonder what's going to happen after that. I think before then, they'll try to get in a surge of development, yeah. assuming coronavirus lets them. And, and then their industry will just stop. 
Well, there is certainly plenty of noise and announcements about making their own factories. But like, yeah, but like I said, those factories won't be as cost effective. So Perhaps the story you expected to be higher up was the polysilicon uh, stuff and the uh, Uyghur forced labour allegations, which we were chatting about last night. And that, that perhaps is worth going into it in a bit more detail. I thought you, you made a very strong case that no one outside of China will do anything about this because their hands are tied. One of the industries that may be affected by forced labour of Uyghurs in Xinjiang and maybe a couple of adjoining provinces in China is polysilicon manufacturing, maybe some other parts of the solar supply chain, but it seems to be polysilicon that's been accused the most. Obviously, Do, the, do you really think that um, forced labour hmm. and, and working in labour camps is conducive to making polysilicon? Well, for one thing, the the real restriction on polysilicon is not cheap labor. You need cheap electricity, and that's why it's migrating to the north of China because they have cheap power. In, incidentally, uh, incidentally, a lot of it's uh, coal, which I think is subsidized coal. So um, you, you get the forced labor. That's let's let's say you do. Well, firstly, you have to train them, which is a little bit against the general impression of slavery or indenture although there's nothing saying that you can't have no, I think it's worse than that I think you, you get to the stage where you say we're, we're trying to re-educate these people into thinking like communists rather than mm. into following a religion they are effectively in terms of the Chinese state the least trustworthy to to do a job that's quite complex um, because they might sabotage it they might be half-hearted they aren't fully-fledged Chinese-loving communists. So you wouldn't give them jobs there. It, I mean, so it's, it seems like the outside is going, oh, polysilicon industry, just because they happen to be in the same place. Now, you know, maybe these accusations are just um, um, convenient. You know, there's an industry we would like to stop importing stuff from. We want an excuse. There is some evidence of forced labor camps in that region. It's like someone saying in Texas, there is there is some Mexican labor. We don't want to buy their oil. Well, is the Mexican labor actually working on the oil? It doesn't matter. <laughs> let's, let's just use it as an excuse to have a commercial war with them. I, I think perhaps that's what's going on here. Hmm. But the, the really weird thing with having a commercial war with China over polysilicon is they've already won. They already have almost all of it. <laughs> and the nobody else wants to make it. And oh, even, oh, yeah. Oh, that's cheap anyway. You could put a 30%, I don't think even a 30% cost. I mean, we have a lot of cost increases in polysilicon. So if you want to build factories right now, it probably is a lot more profitable. But how, how long is that going to last? When 75% you, if, I don't of think voters, we want to. When 75% of your voters in the West are saying, for God's sake, embrace renewables. Mm. As soon as you start taxing them, putting tariffs or putting any kind of sanctions on a place that makes renewables you're increasing the cost the government is subsidizing it you're increasing the cost to the government it, and the eu had tariffs on solar panels for it for years nobody noticed but it was suicidal and it killed the solar industry in europe and and it just seems you know no no china uh, killed the industry by low prices no we we tariffed it out of existence and no nobody you know in the, until four or five years ago, came back to the idea of installing um, solar panels. So this this article, I kind of, I felt like I had to write it because it's it just baffles me 
So we're going to constantly complain about their polysilicon manufacturing while we don't really want to make our own. It doesn't really make sense that you have forced labor for a mostly mechanized uh, process. It just it's, it's just weird. You do get Western polysilicon companies lobbying for this kind of attack and, and other silicon, uh, solar companies in general. But I just don't see where the actual policy fits in, where the practical economic thing would come in with that. And, and like I said in this article, you know, you could raise an import duty on Chinese polysilicon. But if we're accusing them of slavery, we, that would be like saying, oh, well, it's OK, but you have to make less profit from it. It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Politics and uh, and economic uh, commercial common sense don't seem to go together very often. Uh, I think we'll pass on. Interesting thing about Algeria. Um, Harry did the country in focus on Algeria uh, is there is this sort of helpless once you get to grips with the, the Algerian political situation. There's this feeling of helplessness that they are inward looking beyond even India, and they're going to fail to embrace renewables, but because they're so, they, they seem to have a policy that says, well, yeah, we'll start renewables once our oil industry is profitable, uh, and it seems to be um, probably not the right way to think about it. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting thinking about. Um, well, I mean, it's almost a case of they're, they're too late already um, because they've they're so dependent on fossil fuels and they're almost too late to develop their own uh, renewables industry so actually working out ways that they can promote growth in that their renewables it seems almost impossible at the moment but i mean it i mean they will do it there'll be a way around but it's uh, and as i think peter was saying to me last night it'll probably be world bank intervention over the next the good old years. world bank absolutely but yeah so algeria um I mean, it's since it's uh, independence from France, I think in the 60s, it's been very uh, oil and gas focused and has been very much just pumping out oil for the UK, Eurasia generally and France as well. And as a result, its own economy is very dependent on oil. I mean, all of it is electricity from gas um, and the sort of most of the energy is sort of split half and half between oil and gas. Um, so it's it's really... Um, obviously really dependent on oil. The interesting thing is that their oils are actually really expensive. The break-even price is something around $135 per barrel at the moment. How, uh, how? how did it get that expensive? Um, because it's, it's all legacy assets. I mean, you have to bear in mind that a lot of the refinery we see in, in places like the US consolidates using the best available technology, whereas these are just old now. And the amount of maintenance is having to happen is really pushing up the price especially when the price of oil drops as it has been and it as it will continue to do algeria's economy literally just tanks and it, i mean it's, what is this it, what's its currency algeria's currency i'm not sure actually uh, really starts to struggle to the extent it's it's fossil fuel capacity is actually really starting to fall off um which is amazing considering the fact that I mean, it's 90 percent of the country's exports is around 20 to 30 percent of its gdp so it's it's a huge part of it Currency is obviously dollars. I mean, for dealing with everybody else, um, yeah. but it's a dinar apparently, uh, one of the many dinars in the region. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, it's um, yeah. I mean, so it's the interesting thing is obviously the government's really keen to sort of push more production, get production cheaper because obviously this is how they've made money in the past. I mean, the obvious solution, and I think everyone would agree with it across the energy sector, is use the solar power in the south. I mean, it's one of, it's one of the best places for solar you can have, really, the Sahara Desert. And even if you have to build out transmission capacity, that's it's not an insurmountable hurdle to do that, especially when you've got potential to maybe export power 
um, sort of to the Europe, maybe to the Middle East. I mean, you can see that, that what they really want is a hydrogen industry. Absolutely. And and they want to drive solar into hydrogen onto ships and sell it abroad. That that would be great for them if 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 the solar was then also uh, leaking into their grid system and they were getting an uplift in the amount of electricity at the same time. Yes. It, Right, who's going to pay for that? So the oil companies, you can invite the oil companies in, but they're just going to bring more up-to-date equipment and get you a better price for your oil, or at least some profit on your oil. Uh, and that's anathema anyway. They don't want to do that. They want to do it their way. You could invite the World Bank in, but the World Bank will find a much more cooperative country in, in the Western Sahara, just next door, and at the same radiance issues, but they don't have any oil. So, I mean, it, it seems like a problem that's not going to get solved. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, the country's uh, energy sector is monopolised by Sonatrack, which is a an oil and gas company, and has, it, it's the largest company in Africa. It's huge. Uh, I think, and it's also got so much power over the government, which, I mean, the government itself, with the, in terms of, it's, it's put forward renewables targets. It started sort of tendering things, but these tenders are already are massively unsubscribed, purely because they're mandating that more than half of any businesses owned by uh, Algerian companies and bec- and because there aren't any Algerian uh, active players in sort of the solar market really there's just not any um uh, there's not any business for them so how about we give up trying to write a newsletter about renewable energy and we start financing Algerian solar for a living it's we'd make money in hand over fist yeah, I mean, especially when you're comparing it against the uh, energy from oil at £135 a barrel, uh, $135 yeah. a barrel. So, uh, I mean, someone someone has to do it. 